Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky. And joining us today on the show, we've got Andrew D'Angelo, who is a well-known industry prognosticator, consultant, and really portends the future of the industry and what's happening incredibly well. Welcome aboard, Andrew. Good to be with you all today. So, you know, you've been involved in the cannabis industry uh, for many, many years. Uh, your brother's been on the show uh, a couple of times in the past. Uh, we've had some really interesting conversations. You and I haven't chatted. I think we may have met a few years ago, but it's been a long time. But um, you were at the psychedelic uh, conference in Denver last week. And the future of psychedelics is fascinating. And, you know, let's take a look at not just what's happening today, but some of the parallels you see in that industry vis-a-vis -vis what's happened in the cannabis industry over the last couple of years. Do you see it evolving in the same way or very differently? Or do you see some areas which are going to be very similar and others that are just going to go in a complete different direction? Well, it's a very good question. The psychedelic space is kind of where the cannabis space was maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago before widespread legalization. So psychedelics are not legal yet. Um, they are decriminalized in a few places like the Bay Area and Denver and Oregon. Um, so it's, it's much earlier in the cycle for psychedelics, which is a good thing because maybe we can avoid some of the mistakes that were made in the cannabis space when cannabis came out of the shadows and into the light. Hopefully we can. I mean, the I find, you know, cannabis had, you know, a very clunky evolution around the world. You had countries like Canada, which moved ahead more rapidly from a national perspective and imposing stringent standards on all the producers. But of course, the black market and the gray market continued to exist. And, you know, even today, there's the dual flow because the government involvement in taxation uh, without removing the other side of the market continues to exacerbate the problem in terms of the, the conflict. Um, in the U.S., you've got the patchwork that's a bit of everywhere, where, whereas in psychedelics, you do have the one difference, which is immediately apparent in that research is allowed. So big pharma and other companies are able to participate getting ready where they weren't able to do the same in cannabis. Do you see that's going to have a major effect in five years and 10 years different than how things have evolved in this industry, in cannabis industry? Well, no doubt it will. I mean, pharmaceutical companies have a particular transactional goal, basically, mm -hmm. and their secondary goal is to make people well. If their drugs do a good job with making people well, they sell a lot more of them, in theory, anyway. Right. Um, but we... <laughs> But we've seen some very bad behavior from the pharmaceutical industry, most recently with the opioid crisis. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these big pharma companies are literally paying billions of dollars out in damages. Hopefully the, that money will go to actually help the people that were most harmed by the opioid epidemic. I'm skeptical because most of that money just goes into the coffers of the states that cut the deal with the pharmaceutical industry. Agreed. Um, you know, we had a similar thing with the tobacco industry where they settled for billions of dollars and very little of that money actually went to people and families that 
suffered the ravages of tobacco addiction. So um, we have to be very careful. These are sacred compounds we're talking about with psychedelics. Um, they, they're also very powerful compounds. And they have, because of prohibition and, and everything that went down with, you know, the stigma around psychedelics going all the way back to the 60s and Timothy Leary and all the rest of that history or hipstery. I like to call it hipstery. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so, you know, being mindful is something that I know the psychedelic community is really trying to do with respect to this issue that you're talking about. Um, I, a best case scenario, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies, unless some drastic measure was taken that would get those folks off the playing field and onto the sidelines, uh, which I don't see happening. Unfortunately, instance, no. <laughs> if, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. So I, best case scenario, th those folks just care about making the compounds and selling them to clinics and other models that will then administrate those psychedelics to people who need to take them or want to take them and hopefully those folks will be righteous <laughs> and yeah. more in line you know more in line with what those compounds are teaching us you know cannabis and psychedelics are are plants based visionary plants and they're here for a reason they're here to teach us um valuable lessons about being more interconnected with each other and with nature and getting in touch with that so that we don't cook the planet and kill ourselves. I think that's, you know, why these compounds and these plants are sort of knocking on the door in a pretty big way right now uh, across the globe. Cannabis and psychedelics are all over the globe right now. Psychedelics are moving so fast. Uh, and you mentioned dual markets with cannabis, you know, underground and above ground. Clearly, that's the case with psychedelics, will be yep. the case with psychedelics, too. Yep. And so, you know, it, 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 hopefully that dual market problem that we're seeing in cannabis, all of us in the community and particularly government and regulators can learn from that and, and do a better job with psychedelics. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I've, I've had extensive relationships with various governments around the world. And, you know, some of them start better, some of them start, you know, in more backwards positions. But inevitably, they all seem to get themselves trip over their own feet along along the way. And it's shameful, because the people who pay, you know, people end up in the justice system who have no business being in the end persecuted it's not prosecuted it's persecuted for the things they're doing where they really are working on trying to help people and part of what you touched upon there you know it's just a fascinating topic with regards to the the dual track and the the plants in nature because essentially it nature evolves all plants all animals for a balance for a reason and those plants are all there for us to consume and to figure out how to use. Now, one of the things when we look at the farm industry is, you know, they're all public, so their mandate is make as much money as possible because the shareholder demands it or all they're, or they're all out of jobs. But 
a nice opportunity for the psychedelics industry because the pharma industry can participate is their other part of their mandate is if they can't produce a molecule that generates at least a billion dollars in revenue annually, they don't bother. And with psychedelics, there's so many different courses of treatment. Not everyone is going to be a billion dollar uh, area, right? Not each disease and each condition individually is going to be a billion dollars that opportunity remains for the market as a whole. And so there is a chance to coexist where in cannabis, pharma can't figure out how to enter the marketplace because it is purely plant-based. And that's part of, part of an issue. And how do you see that changing? Or do you see the, how do you see that part of the opportunity? Well, I think what you've just touched here is really important because if that billion dollar threshold cannot be crossed with most of the compounds because the there's fragmentation in treatment and compounds. Okay. Uh -huh. There's going to be lots that, that might actually be a good thing because um, more small businesses and grassroots businesses and people who really care about this can provide those, compounds and services up to a billion dollars right that's right <laughs> um, well that's that's exactly and, it there's opportunity and that's a nice living that's a nice living for a lot of people and um you know i most of the people i know that are on the righteous side of the ledger here with cannabis and psychedelics we're not trying to create global domination um, mm -hmm. we're not trying to be billionaires we don't really care about that we care about making the world heal and donning this new age of consciousness that has been around since really quite a long time but 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 has been in the minority right and mm -hmm. so if so i i think that you know from your lips to god's ears let's hope all of them don't reach the billion dollar threshold <laughs> <laughs> well we want them to we want them to in a few because that opens the doors for everybody else well yes and i think you're going to see that probably i mean mdma is close mm -hmm. um and psilocybin is close those might be the two dominant compounds uh that are used at least initially for therapeutics they're going to get through the fda process they're going to get a stamp of approval, most likely. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, Big Pharma can make a run at those compounds. And, you know, they, their problem is how did they, you know, these compounds are a little different. You don't self-administer them. You have to, you know, go to a trip center or you have to trip. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that, that there's a six to you know, 36 hours is depending on the protocols of the trip center and how much prep you do and how much decompression you do. Um, but you have to trip. And so that's unique for the pharma model. And, and so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they do that last mile, if you will, yeah. or that last, you know, and, um, again, it presents both threats and opportunities for our community. Um, and, we'll just have to see what happens. I, I, I imagine some pharma companies are going to try to be vertically integrated and control how their compound is administered with in clinics and so forth. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely, I agree with you 100% there. And, you know, I want to come to psychedelic retreats in a moment, but just finishing off on that, you know, it's part of the challenges. These industries develop based on where the money flows and it's easier for big farm to participate because they have the money. But there are some companies which in the space like LSDI, which are already public and they're woefully undervalued. And as you take a look at the stock price, but as soon as they start taking off, it does help attract the money for everybody else to do the things necessary. Hopefully, you know, that starts happening sooner rather than later, because that's really going to assist in terms of not just uh, the funds coming into the industry, but the attention and the um, force on the regulators to open things up more quickly, because the more the money's flowing in, the more farmers is going to be interested, the more farmers interested, the more they're going to open the doors for everybody else in this case, where in cannabis, it's been a bit of a more, you know, it hasn't worked that way. And one of the ways that that leads into is there are more and more retreats being set up where people, you know, can go to psychedelic clinics or retreats and experience, but also open their minds and help deal with things like depression and other issues that PTSD that they're facing. You've taken a look at some of these. I know that was one of the things that came up during the uh, Denver conference. And I believe you and your brother or you uh, are also involved with uh, one down in uh, one of the islands. Is that correct? In Jamaica? Yes, Jamaica. Jamaica, um, my brother has built a fabulous retreat center with Rastafari Indigenous Village. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a that's a Rastafarian community that is a real village. They all live there. They are craftspeople, musicians, and artists, and farmers. And you can uh, go down and and for pretty low cost. The RIB we call it RIB model. Our model is a nonprofit model. So all the money that we make goes back into the village goes back into the indigenous community and and um and that allows us to offer a much lower price uh for the retreats it's also i think a model you know one of the things that that all of us have to be mindful of is is reaching out to people of color and and making sure that we create safe spaces for people of color to come and and do their therapies yes. and it's very hard for it's very hard for us as people that are not uh, people of color, that are, are white folks, um, to create those models. It's just impossible for us to understand the psychological dimensions of the trauma and other aspects of being a person of color. Whereas in this model that we've created with the RIB, it's a it's a authentic collaboration between p- me and my brother and this community um that's all people of color so we're trying to bridge that gap with this and and offer a lower price model a nonprofit model to help people come down and 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 do various visionary plants it's, it's psilocybin but there's also um ayahuasca and um other plants visionary plants that can be used uh legally in jamaica uh, with indigenous communities so that's the one we've built so far. There's a bunch of other ones in Jamaica that are a little bit more, call them high end or luxury experiences. Right. Probably two or three, you know, and, yep. and we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, a bunch of different 
models right now, both luxury and indigenous. I mean, for a long time, you could go down to Peru or uh, uh-huh. other places in the Amazon and, and have ayahuasca ceremonies with all kinds of different um, shamans and, uh-huh. and, and medicine women down there. And, and, and those are, those have been around for a while and down there by the Amazon. So, so we're, we're seeing more and more of these, I think, Oregon, I think the first legal trip center just opened in Oregon or is about to open in Oregon and that's going to be psilocybin. So um, Oregon is really on the tip of the spear here in the Very United so. States. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So we all are watching that, you know, with eager eyes and, and with learning eyes, really, and curious eyes to make sure to really learn from these first models and, and see what's working and what's not working. Um, you know, for instance, in RIV, our little uh, retreat center in Jamaica we built, um, it's not a therapeutic center in the sense that you go into a room with a psychiatrist or a trained right. therapist and, and you don't and you put earphones on and, and eye shades on and, and you trip that way. This is more um, outside. There's a fire pit. You gather around the fire pit. You drum together. Um, if you need to, you know, move away from the circle and sort of lie down in a field, <laughs> you yep. can do that. And and so it's 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 take it's making therapeutics a little and celebration. It's kind of combining ritual celebration and therapeutics into one experience. Um, so and it's very connected I to think, nature in that way, right? It's, it's there's no detachment, which some, unfortunately happens in some cases. Yeah, I mean the Rastafarian indigenous village is in the middle of yeah. uh, a river and a forest. There's there's no choice. I mean, one of the things that people have reported uh, RIV going down the RIV, and 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 if you live in the city, let's say you live in New York City, you go down there. And literally, you cannot sleep at night because the sound of the frogs is right. so um, <laughs> so powerful that yep. you can't sleep at night because you, you know you're used to the sounds of the city, not the sounds of the frogs. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, and so, you really immerse yourself into the natural environment, and 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 by design, that is supposed to you're supposed to grok nature, you know, on uh-huh. a deeper level and, and sort of integrate with the natural world as, as part of the therapy. Hopefully when people leave and they go back to New York city, you know, they're more likely to pick up some trash they see on the ground. They're more likely to compost their um, vegetable scraps and things like that. It, it gets, nature gets into the DNA a little bit more into our conscious awareness a little bit more. And we start to do these small things that we all can do that will help out uh, immensely. Yeah. Awareness people underestimate. It's not just all awareness. Isn't about you as an individual. It's actually you connected to everything around you. And that, that level of awareness is something so many people are lacking in general. And it's one of the nice things you can see with somebody who has become well-adjusted and is more in tune is they are thoughtful, right? People talk, you know, people talk about mindfulness, but mindfulness, thinking of it isn't enough. There's a, there's a much bigger step to be taken. It's funny when you mentioned Peru and 
ayahuasca. I remember one of my many trips down there being invited to go up for a midnight ceremony at Machu Picchu. And it was a once a year deal for this person who had the access. And unfortunately I was leaving and I couldn't extend my stay by the couple of days, but that would have been magical. So, you know, one part you touched on earlier that I want to circle back about the, um, the Rastafari indigenous village is it's integrated with the local culture, but also that sort of activity tends to, you know, it's an investment in the community. How, and you mentioned it's not for profit, but obviously the money that's being received is being invested back into the community. What what are the hopes and goals in terms of the, um, how is it going to benefit directly? Is it going, you know, is it going to be something towards schooling or health or what, there's all sorts of different ways projects can be involved from a community benefit uh, perspective. What have you looked at? What are you planning? Well, the Rastafarian Indigenous Village had to raise some money to build out the cabins that guests stay at and yeah. to shore up, and shore up the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, and it's, it's, it's in a place in Jamaica, there's a river running through it. There's erosion happens, um, storms come through. So there's, there's quite a bit of maintenance involved. So mm-hmm. some of the money just, just goes to maintain it and, and improve it. We're always trying to, you know, figure out ways to, whether it be landscaping or making the ganja and vegetable garden bigger or um, having a place where people can make their own chocolate. This is something Mm that uh, cacao. Um, And so it it all goes back into the village. Now, the the village was heavily impacted by the pandemic because they were, before my brother and I got involved with them, they were already doing some retreats. There's a, a dynamic, one of the leaders of, RIV and you know it's it's not a leader is we use the word leader differently (laughs) than what we're used to it's a it's very everybody's very autonomous at the village but but first man is one of the leaders of um the village and and he's a very dynamic charismatic brilliant man right and and he's um he's the one that's going to be administrating the funds and making sure they're used properly. So for instance, the village, a lot of people had to leave the village during the pandemic because they couldn't make a living anymore. They they couldn't bring in, they were already doing uh, retreats and they were um, having um, tourists come off the boats and and experience the village off the big cruise ships and experience the village. And they were making a a living that way. And then the pandemic stopped all the cruise, cruise ships from coming in. Uh-huh. And the village, the population of the village went collapsed by 80 percent. So all those folks, all those folks need to come back home uh-huh. um, and and repopulate the village. There's also a lot of children um, at the village that are being raised there uh, authentically. Right. When you come to the village, you'll meet some children <laughs> um, yeah. and all, all those children need to go to school. They need to be educated, hopefully get higher education. Um, and then they will 
once they're educated, they will use those skills to further the interests of the village. So it's it's a project that's like a lot, I hope a lot of psychedelic projects will be about um, economic development, righteous economic development within indigenous communities that have been really decimated by whether it's climate change or whether it's the pandemic or, or whether it's just poverty mm-hmm. that's for quite some time. I hope that we can respect the traditions, um, the medicine and the people that have been carrying these plants for millennia probably. Um, and, and at the same time, uplift their, their lives and make their, their lives better and, and, and create a little bit more prosperity and security, I think more than anything, right? A little bit of economic security. It, 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 it's, it's been very difficult, particularly with the pandemic. So it has been, it's been, it's been incredibly difficult on everybody and you know more the people who are in the lesser developed areas were even much more highly impacted than we were when people think we went through challenges we went through nothing by comparison to some of the other countries and areas of the world and you know the programs you're talking about like working on the restoration of the riverbanks because of the flooding and the damage and you know helping and then you touched on the children and that's always been a big one for me it's why I did a lot of the work I did in South America but also um you know, when I look at these projects, I think my son, when he was in grade 10, went for six months to school in India. And while he was there, they he learned about a neighboring village where the kids walked four hours each way to school. So four hours there, four hours back from grade one on. And he and the classmates raised money and ended up building a one-room schoolhouse. So the kids didn't have to walk four hours because there was only a half dozen of them. And the teacher would go there to teach them that sort of change, those eight hours a day, that's a life for people. And we take those things for granted when we're in communities like this or you know, with the one where the rest of our village is and others, the small differences we can make that we think are small are transformational for the people's lives. So anything that you're doing like that is just, you know, it's laudable, it's fantastic. That's a great story, yes. I, I was born in India. My parents were over there for the Peace Corps. My brother oh, really? was, yeah, my brother was, I think, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was just a baby, so I don't remember much of it, but um, great experience. And yeah, my, my father was the Southern Regional Director of the Peace Corps. And lots of projects, like you just mentioned, building schoolhouses, building mm-hmm. wells, um, latrines. In those days, this was the late 60s there's a big problem with dysentery and people, yep. you know, not having latrines. Um, so yeah, it, 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 we do take so much for granted um, because we have such prosperity. Um, it's hard for us. And, you know, the pandemic was hard on all of us here too. It wasn't like a cakewalk. Psychologically it was horrible on people everywhere. Yeah. And, but, but we can't imagine the impact that something like that happens in the second and third world uh, uh, that we live in. And, and we just can't imagine it. And, and so it's very important that when we can't imagine it, (laughs) that we go Uh see it for ourselves or that we, you know, extend enough compassion and empathy um, to that part, those parts of the world that we can help, you know, because, 
at the end of the day, everybody's connected and, you know, the impacts are felt. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen it with the global supply chains and inflation and so forth. It, a lot of that is because, you know, the global economy in places like Jamaica and Peru and Mexico and so forth, you know, folks were just decimated. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you you couldn't go to the hospital and get on a ventilator. Okay. Well, they didn't have them. I mean, I I had a person I know who built, he and uh, and a lady and him put together the money, but they had to build a field hospital with uh, 300 ventilators because there weren't any. And, you know, that was in Lima for a population of 12 million people, 300 is nothing, but it was better. It had something. And then, you know, you take that and my, some of my staff in Peru, their families were locked up for three months where they were allowed out to walk the dog and once every other day to uh, buy groceries. But other than that, they had to stay in their apartments for three months. We didn't have to deal with that, but the economic impact, you know, when we think about it and you look at what happened there, horrific. And like you said, villages died. That's, you know, those effects are going to be felt for a long time. We need solutions. I couldn't agree more. Yes, uh, absolutely. So you know, we have a very long, long way to go. There, 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 we're nowhere close to being able to spike the football on psychedelics um, and, and, and helping all these communities where we're still, you know, we're still on the bottom of the first inning. So but we're getting started. Um, and I actually have more optimism about the trajectory of this industry than I do about cannabis still today. You know, I was heavily involved in the cannabis industry. I built one of the firms down in South America. I helped write the laws in Peru so the mothers wouldn't go to jail. And I look at how we're stalled and I don't see it changing. I know I, I was reading your predictions for 2023 and you mentioned, you know, no legalization in the States this year. I don't see it for a few years. And I don't think even if we warn everybody of what's really coming when legalization happens, I don't think the industry is ready. Yeah, but I that's why people you. like I, you I, and I have consulting to do, right? Because we can actually help some of them set up properly for when it does. That's right. I, you know, it's a dumpster fire right now. The cannabis industry. There's no question about it. There's still ways to build righteous and profitable models, but it, it's quite difficult. And you know, the federal government's just uh, impossible with with cannabis. Um, mm-hmm. One 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 stupid thing after another derails everything that we're trying to do. And and the industry itself and the activists themselves are fragmented. And yes not not unified at all and and so it's very hard to get consensus um and because uh, partly because the the a lot more people consume cannabis right now than consume psychedelics i think that's very quickly changing but um um and so it's perceived anyway that the market is much bigger uh for cannabis and so the exuberance and greed i i would mm-hmm. say that um, involved in that, you know, really changes the calculus of, of how all of this works, both at the state level and 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 the federal level. So I agree with you. It's, it's, it's not just this year or next year. I, who knows when uh, the federal government's going to do anything uh, with cannabis, whereas with psychedelics, it's moving through the 
the FDA approval system, you know, pretty mindfully and pretty strongly. And, you know, part of that is folks like Rick Doblin and Maps, they've just done uh-huh. an excellent job, you know, being the stewards of this. They, they've yes. really just done, you know, the psychedelic um, elites, I would say, in the psychedelic community are not really elites um, because that word is loaded, but it, they're, they're leaders, right? And, That's right. Um, and they, they've just done a very, a better job than, than I'm, I'm sorry to say, leaders um, in the cannabis space have done. And as a result, you know, um, we're farther along. There, there's a other, you know, the big elephant in the room with the cannabis industry is racism. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, um, because cannabis has been such a big part of black culture and um, people of color, yep. there's been more of a war against it because of that, because it's, it's really not about the plant. It's about the people that are using the plant and those folks have brown and black skin and it, and we know what happens to you if you have brown and black skin in this country. So mm-hmm. I think that that has played and continues to play a really big role in the, um, excuse my language, the fuckery that's happening in the cannabis sector right now. So, you know, a lot of us, including me and my brother, especially Steve, uh, are pivoting <laughs> uh, more and more into psychedelics from cannabis because we, we, we see that there's a better framework emerging to, to help folks and to build models that, that actually work. Well, and that's part of it. At the end of the day, a lot of us got involved in you know, the, both industries really trying to help people. And if we can't help them because of government opposition in one, but we can in the other, we'll spend our time there because we can pound our heads against the wall, explain to people why they're idiots not to make it possible for people to get the help they need, or we can get people the help they need. Absolutely. That's right. And, and you banging your head against the wall is a very good analogy because I've, I've, I've felt like that for years now in the, in, in the cannabis space. And, and you're right, the elected officials and the regulators just don't listen to the people that have the knowledge that they need to listen to. And they end up listening to people that don't have the knowledge. Um, I don't care if your think tank is in Harvard University, um, you're not going to know how to framework a new industry like cannabis. And if you think you do, you're suffering from hubris in a yeah, pretty exactly. big way. And you we've know? all made and those mistakes so- in the industry, right? I mean, none of us have judged it perfectly and or seen it unroll the way we expected it to. And we've all made some good steps and some missteps, some bigger than others. Oh, absolutely. I mean, me and my brother locked our company. Um, so <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm very aware of, 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 but you know, the mistakes are, 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 are the, the most of the blame that, that I, that I assign for the cannabis industry really goes to the political class, um, the elected officials and the regulators. Yes, we in the industry have made mistakes, but most of those mistakes were made as a reaction to bad public policy. 
Um, right. So one of one of the mistakes we made was we we the public policy in California on the adult use framework was so bad that the only way you could turn a profit was to be a vertically integrated company. Uh-huh. Um, and so and so we decided to do that. Well, in retrospect, that was a mistake because moving up the supply chain cost us a lot of money that we had to raise from people that we shouldn't have taken money from. And and moving up the supply chain ended up being a mistake that a, a judgment uh, error on our part. But if we had not moved up the supply chain and just remained cannabis retail, uh-huh. um, we probably we probably would have suffered a similar fate because it's just impossible with the framework in California unless you have already have tens of millions of dollars or yeah. have the ability to raise maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars you're not going to be able to to build something that will sustain itself within this framework here so it, it, it while we made some judgment mistakes for sure those all of those judgments came as a response to bad public policy and us trying to figure out, well, how do we make this model work with yeah. this terrible framework? How do we do it? And uh-huh. at some point, you make a decision. At some point, you have to commit to it. And if that decision is wrong and your commitment is very strong, like me and my brother is very committed people, uh-huh. um, you know, you, you can find yourself in a world of hurt pretty quick. And, and that certainly is what happened to us with our, our previous company, Harborside. Right. Um, so... Which actually you know, was I born, think, I was looking through the information, it was born on October 3rd, 2006, which is the same day as my daughter. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, uh, not a, a, a wonderful bit of uh, numerology, but, um, um, uh, but yeah, you know, we were very early, 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 early. 06, nobody else was legal except California for medical. It's, it's hard to even imagine a world where it was just California. But it was in those days. It's also hard to imagine that dispensaries were getting raided by the DEA in California on a daily basis. But that isn't what was happening in those days. And, you know, the state cops were helping them, um, even though we had a a medical legalization framework. Um, It was it was it was it was still quite dangerous um, in 06. It was. It was. And I don't know, I, going when you, taking a step back against what you were saying, for me, I think the biggest errors are taking everybody at their word, or not everybody, but believing, especially the uh, government officials, taking them at their word when they clearly weren't prepared to actually go to battle to move anything forward. And, you know, I think a lot of us got caught you know, in Colombia, um, where the various government officials, right, through the Ministry of Health and presidents, swore they were going to allow exports in 2019. And they're still cluttering it up for everybody. And then you've got the international markets, which said they'd be allowing imports. I mean, Canada, the law technically would allow imports, but Health Canada won't do it. They're stagnating the industry for everybody worldwide. Then the U.S., you know, with the Safe Banking Act, these are all things which government is getting in the way of people's health and it's not just a local thing it's a global issue but andrew we i mean i'm sure we could continue this conversation for another hour but i think we are out of time for the day 
Um, one last quick one is you had your prognostications of 10 things that were going to happen in 2023. We're halfway through the year. What's one thing that's happening that you didn't expect um, to see in this year? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I didn't expect that um, the rollout in New York for legalization would be so clumsy. Right. Um, uh, it, it goes back to what you said a moment ago. We're, we were, we've been naive when it comes to listening to government officials. And, uh-huh. you know, the New York framework, everybody was so hopeful um, when that framework came out two years ago. And, you know, it's, it's gone really badly. Um, and I, I, I knew, it, you know, there's, I, I'd learned enough from California that things would be clumsy, but I didn't know that I didn't expect that it would be quite as, uh, as, as bad as, as, as it is now. So, so that's one thing that took me a little bit by surprise. I, I thought there'd be a lot more activity in New York with respect to getting the card license licensees open, the social equity folks open. Um, and, um, so that took me by surprise a little bit. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that's taken me by surprise is just how quickly the psychedelic space is growing and, and, and becoming very interesting to people. The conference had three times as many attendees as they expected. Uh-huh. Uh, and, Attendance and, was phenomenal. Yeah, and mushrooms are just sweeping the country. Uh, in a pretty big way. Uh, those of us that are in touch with, you know, folks that grow and, and distribute mushrooms are, are seeing a lot of growth in that uh, area. Uh, and it's just happening so fast, you know, whether you're talking about people that are into microdosing or you're talking about, you know, everything that's happening um, with the FDA or you're talking about everything that's happening um, in people's in the privacy of their homes right now as they experiment with taking these compounds in in a safe setting Uh um, it's just been explosive and um, the speed at which the psychedelic space is growing and moving um, is very surprising to me you don't really see it until you go to a, a conference like that, right? And you don't really see it in, in, until everyone's gathered together and you're like, whoa, um, this is, there's a lot more happening here than I even imagined. Yeah, the friction, the friction is, is missing, which um, is nice to see. And the friction is, you know, from a, on so many levels, it's not a, it's not a social statement. It's actually a friction in terms of there isn't the political issues. There, there aren't so many of the issues which have stymied the cannabis industry. Um, not that they won't exist, but the, they aren't holding everybody back the way they were. Um, and hopefully that continues because people need help. And at the end of the day, there are some phenomenal benefits to the compounds that are transformative in people's lives. Andrew, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, incredibly informative, and I hope that you and I chat again in the near future. Me too. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. 
And thanks to everybody for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky, and we'll be back again with you soon.